The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Hello, RGF. Thank you for everybody who is watching this recording today. I know that this is difficult to continue in this manner, to regularly gather around a computer screen rather than in person, but I want you all to know that I love you very much and I want to thank you for your commitment to RGF. Thank you for your continued support in terms of prayer and giving and digital involvement. Thank you for continuing to love one another even outside of the boundaries of these four walls. Lord willing, we will gather together again soon, but I would ask that you join me now as we pray to that end. God, we ask that you would indeed cause your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Lord, that whatever you are doing currently here in our nation and around the world, that you would allow us to once again gather soon, regardless of um, what the stipulations will be. I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be able to meet in person in the near future. But until then, as we are currently required to gather in this manner, I pray, Lord, that people would not find it stale, that they would not come to these videos and fast forward them or step away from them or become distracted through them. Rather, Lord, I pray that your word would have a radical impact on the lives of each person seeing it, just as if Jesus himself was here in the room with them. Lord, I pray that you would please work in our lives, cause us to see the gospel more clearly, radically transform us, help us to behold you and your son so that we might be transformed into your image. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please open your physical copy of the Bible to 1 John chapter 1. Just after World War II, while many communities across our country were setting up their new normal in terms of peacetime living, one town in Texas experienced something quite the opposite. Instead of restoration, they instead experienced extreme loss. The day started off like any other in the small town of Itasca. However, it soon turned to tragedy when the local school building caught fire, resulting in the worst school fire in United States history. 263 dead, mostly children. As you can imagine, this little town was devastated. Never again, they said. Never again would they allow something like this to happen. As a result, this little city of Itasca developed a world-class sprinkler system unlike any other that had been seen before. Other companies and school districts would send people to see Itasca and see what this school system had done in order to protect their students with this sprinkler system. In fact, even honor students were responsible to take people on tours and explained how this worked. The little school went from having the most dangerous possible setup to being the gold standard for fire suppression safety. First John was written to a church who was confused and disturbed by recent events that had taken place within their body. They had experienced a departure of many members. We read in chapter 2, verse 19, these words. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. 
Now, it's possible here that we are looking at the first church split in all of church history. John refers to those who departed as little a antichrists. They were not saved, or as John would put it, they are not of us. So over the course of the book, John is going to systematically dismantle the lifestyle and beliefs of those who have revealed that they are not of us, of those who are anti-Christ. They have shown themselves to be outside of the grace of God. In doing so, he is also going to encourage those who are within the church by showing them what true Christianity really is so that they might know that they are in the faith. John explains this motive toward the end of his little book in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, in order that you might know that you are in, that you are of us, that you are saved. Our focus for this morning will primarily be on chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. In fact, if I were to zoom it in even farther, I would say primarily on verse 7. My hope for right now is to show you John's argument regarding what it means to walk in the light. Simply put, true Christians walk in the light. But what does that look like? How do we define walking in the light? Obviously, John is using metaphorical language, not literal language, but this is of utmost importance to the believer that we comprehend what he means when he says that we are called to walk in the light. So as we read the word together, you are going to notice a pattern arise. In these six verses that I'm about to read to you, there are three positive statements and three negative statements in an alternating pattern. Verses 5, 7, and 9 are speaking to what it looks like to be a true Christian. The uh, even number verses, 6, 8, and 10, are showing what a false convert looks like, what a little a antichrist looks like. Each of these are conditional if-then statements, and they are designed to cause you and I to examine our own hearts and to see where we are aligning ourselves. So join me by hearing now the very word of God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If I had to condense the spiritual growth of our church so far this year and explain it in one word, it would have to be the word repentance. There has been a growing sensitivity and a willingness to confess sin and to reject it in this congregation, for which I am very thankful. According to the verses that we just read, one of the defining characteristics of a true Christian is that we acknowledge our sin. The inverse of this, the antichrist response, is to view ourselves as righteous. We call that self-righteousness. I am good. I have no sin. I am perfect. There is no sin in me. According to John, if we say that, we make God himself to be a liar. Now, this is important for us to notice. 
the world looks at us and they think of us as people who view ourselves as high holy rollers. We are viewing ourselves as better than everyone else. But the inverse is really true of the actual Christian. We view ourselves rightly, that we have no standing with God because of our own works or our own goodness. Rather, it is only the blood of Christ that makes us able to stand before the Lord. Now, there are millions of people who would never say these words out loud, I am perfect, yet they believe them to be true. It's very possible that you, who are watching this video right now, are self-deceived and walking in darkness. When was the last time that you admitted you sinned? I'm not talking now about a half-hearted acknowledgement that you messed up or I could have done better, but I'm talking about an actual broken-hearted realization that you have committed a sin, an offense against a holy God. Do you cover up your sin? Do you sweep it under the rug? Do you act as though it's not a big deal? Do you hide it from the view of others? Do you lie about it? These are all dangerous evidences of unrepentance. And if it continues on, evidence that there is no genuine salvation at all. What does John mean when he tells us that we are to walk in the light? What exactly does a light-based life look like? One good way to begin understanding what something is, is to first chip away at all the things that it is not. So I would like to share with you some counterfeit versions of what it means to walk in the light. I'm going to share with you four things that it is not, and then we will zone in on one thing that it really is. And as I explain these things, I'm going to go for the, through these first four, because I do believe that Christians often look to these other four substitutes and view them as actual walking in the light. Here's the first one. Walking in the light is not the same thing as knowing the truth. This one is by far the most obvious of the four. There is a vast chasm between knowing what is right to do and doing what is right. There is a natural human trait that says, well, I know that I'm walking in the light because I know Jesus and because I know what's in the Bible and because I know the difference between right and wrong. I know the rules better than most people. Therefore, I must be in the light. Now, this is probably obvious to you, but the very fact that John uses the verb walk that you must walk in the light, the fact that he includes this in, in the command should make it clear that this is not merely concerned with an awareness of right and wrong, but it is about living it out. But the mind cannot be divorced from the picture either. There are many times when the idea of light in the New Testament is speaking to an enlightening of the mind. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 speaks of the minds of unbelievers being blinded. And in verse 6, Paul refers to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Without a knowledge of the glory of God, there certainly won't be any walking in the light. And the mind is certainly not out of play because one of the descriptions of walking in darkness that we just read is a denial of our own sin as a form of self-deception. We have convinced ourselves in our minds that we are right with God. So within the pages of even this very brief epistle of 1 John, he uses the word know, K-N-O-W, know, 32 times. For example, he says, and by this we know, we know that we have come to know him. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Chapter 2, verse 2. 
you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin, chapter 3, verse 5. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Chapter 3, verse 16. 32 times he says that we know something. As Christians who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, we have been given the ability to know the truth, to discern right from wrong. The gospel never affects the heart before it is first processed through the mind. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. James informs us that we must not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In other words, it goes into the ears to your mind, and then it must then be carried out by your life. So the mind is part of what it means to walk in the light, but as we will certainly see, there must be much more to it than that. So point number two, walking in the light is not the same thing as having accountability. Accountability itself is a very funny term. Literally, it means that you must give an account to someone. And as far as I can tell, this term is a relatively new one in the course of church history. What, what I mean by that is not that the word itself is new, but the concept of how we use the term is definitely new. In the Bible, we see that we are going to give an account. But when it speaks about giving an account, who, to whom do we give this account? We give this account to God. But that does not mean that we have no authority over us. We are accountable in other ways to our obligations to family and our jobs and our government. But in terms of the church, we are responsible to live out our lives of transparency and commitment and godliness before one another. In fact, I think that most of what is meant when we say the term accountability is actually precisely what the Bible is speaking about when it uses the term fellowship. In verse 7, we see it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. The way that John is writing, he is paralleling confession of sin and repentance and walking in transparency and walking in openness about our own sin. He is comparing that with the word fellowship. That, I think, is the actual meaning of that term. But notice, fellowship with one another is the outworking of walking in the light. It is certainly intimately connected with walking in the light, but it is not the same thing. People who walk in the light will be open and they will be honest about their spiritual life with those in their local body. I have heard Mark Dever say on a few occasions that the Bible always presents the Christian life as personal, but never as private. It is not designed to be only you and God. You are required to fellowship or have accountability and openness and transparency with the rest of the body about who you really are. That is the natural result of walking in the light. But it is not the same thing as walking in the light. Which brings us to point number three. Walking in the light is not the same thing as confessing your sin. Confession of sin is an important part of the process of repentance. I love how Heath Lambert explains this in his book, Finally Free. He says, sinners need grace more than anything else, including the grace to recognize and admit our sin. We reject grace when we deny our sin, according to John. When you deny your sin, you deny your access 
to God. You deny yourself access to God's grace. When you admit your sin to God, then you access his grace. Now, I think we can all agree that this year, Easter was just weird. Everything about it was odd. It was strange. And personally, I was deeply saddened when I was sitting in this room and then standing in this room and preaching to an empty room except for the camera and Ben. And as I was preaching, I did my best to make most of the things I did as normal as possible for an Easter morning service, for the most part. In the video, you probably noticed that I wore a suit and tie, just like I normally would. At least that's what you could see. In reality, I was actually wearing a suit up here on the top with a tie and a jacket, but I was really on the bottom just wearing sweatpants and flip-flops, which by the way is what I'm doing right now. And you would have never known that had I not told you that or if Ben didn't reveal it. The fact is, I could quite easily have hidden my wardrobe in that sense by only presenting a partial view of myself. Hypocrisy is a major problem in the church. We pretend all the time. We pretend that we are holy. We display our good side and we never want to present the dark part of our heart to another person. Just like Adam and Eve hid from God in the garden, we like to hide our sin from each other and in our sinful stupor, we actually imagine that we are able to hide our sins from God himself. Then when conviction hits us, what do we do? Then we confess our sins. We confess our sin to God. We confess our sin to one another. And we know the glorious promise of chapter 1 verse 9 that if we confess our sin, or might I say in our case, when we confess our sin, that he is faithful and he is just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, confession is integral to genuine repentance. But confession, please notice, is not, repent, is not the same thing as walking in the light. Confession is what happens when we fail to walk in the light. It is like a reset button that brings us back to a point of walking in the light after we have been walking for a period of time in darkness. Confession is a tool that God has given to us to restore us, but confession of sin is not the same thing as walking in the light. Point number four, walking in the light is not the same thing as morality. It would certainly be wrong to say that moral living has nothing to do with walking in the light, but I think we need to be warned against the idea that just because we are doing a bunch of good things or just because we are not doing a bunch of bad things that we are walking in the light. Jesus had biting words, harsh words for the Pharisees who walked in moral conformity outwardly to the law. Have you ever heard me or another pastor or Bible teacher talk about how bad it would be if all of your thoughts were projected on a screen for the whole church or the whole public to see? That would be terrible. That would be awful. You don't want the innermost parts of yourself being revealed to others. Well, in Matthew chapter 23, it is nothing less than a complete unveiling of the hearts of the Pharisees. We see, for example, in verses 25 through 26, these words, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside might also be clean. 
Do you get Jesus' point here? They were willing to walk in outward moral conformity to the law, but Jesus gets instead to the heart, and he deals with their greed and their self-indulgence. What is he talking about here? These are the inside things. Greed? These are the inside things that nobody from the outside could ascertain. I cannot look at you and discern your motives. Jesus did that to the Pharisees. I don't know your heart, but God does. He always does. Jesus continues in the next two verses, 27 and 28, and says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly you appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You should not simply be interested in what Jesus calls the appearance of righteousness. You should not just be in, interested in your reputation for morality. Jesus is noting that true obedience to God is actually born out of a heart of good. Motives matter to God. In fact, notice what Jesus called outward moral conformity to the law. He calls it lawlessness. Sure, you're obeying a bunch of rules, but in God's book, that is still lawlessness if the heart is not right. Now again, this is not to say that morality is outside of the picture. In, verse, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, we read the words, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. And John even intensifies his language in verse 8 and says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This word of the devil literally means a child of Satan. God is deeply invested in his children's lives. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 tells us, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. The will of God for you is that you would be transformed and conformed into the image of Christ. So what do we learn from this? Christians will obey God. Christians will grow in a pattern of ever-increasing obedience. But moral conformity is not the same thing as what John means when he says that we are to walk in the light. So we have learned four things that are all connected to walking in the light, but are not the same thing as walking in the light. So here we go. Moment of truth. What is John saying when he says that we should walk in the light? First John chapter one, verse seven tells us we are to walk in the light as he is in the light. This word A-S is super important for us to understand. Notice that verse six says that God himself is the light. John is a master at using dualistic metaphors. You are either alive or you are dead. You are in, you are out. You are a child of God or you are a child of the devil. There's no gray area here. He also declares that you are either walking in the light or you are walking in darkness. So let's contrast here for a moment what the Bible is speaking about when it speaks about darkness. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So at the very least, 1 Peter tells us that there is a connection between being an unbeliever and being in darkness. Those who have been saved have received mercy, and those are the people who have been ushered into the presence of God, who have been ushered into the light. This light is an invite-only situation. Being moral does not get you in. But it would be absolutely incorrect to say that obedience has nothing to do with walking in the light. John expounds on this a little later in 1 John chapter 2, verses 4-6, through 6, when he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Obedience is a major part of the Christian life. If we are not acting as servants of Jesus, it shows that we don't really think of him as our king. But what I want to zoom in here on here is verse 6, which says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that this phrase about walking shows up just nine verses after he talks about walking in the light. I think he is describing what it looks like to walk in the light. If you want to know what it looks like to walk in the light, just consider the life of Jesus. Consider how he walked. Now, here's where something clicked for me recently. When Jesus would express his character, in other words, when he was being attacked by those who were unbelievers, by those who did not believe in him as Savior, and they wanted to accuse him, he did not speak about his amazing record of law-keeping. He does not go to the fact that he is perfectly obedient. One of the occasions when the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus, he took the opportunity to explain to them why he does the things that he does. John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. How did Jesus walk? He walked coram Deo, meaning he walked before the face of God. He was always about his Father's business. So I offer for your consideration that when John speaks about walking in the light, what he means is that we are to live before the face of God. He means more than just obedience. He is speaking about worship. R.C. Sproul, who, by the way, was a master with words and who I miss immensely, he explained this concept of walking before God's face like this. He said, to live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing, and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. There is no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating eye. End quote, end quote and well said. This language of walking in the light is not new to the New Testament. All the way back in Psalm chapter 89, this concept was presented to Israel to be sung on a regular basis. 
Ethan the Ezraite wrote these words, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light. But he doesn't stop there. He says, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says that God is light. It stands to reason that if God is light, then walking in the light means walking before the face of God, just like Ethan the Ezraite had said. So what happens when people see the face of God? What happened to Isaiah when he had that vision of the throne room? The result was an immediate awareness of his own darkness. He knew that he was a man of unclean lips. He knew that he could never stand against the white-hot radiance of God's holy perfection. When you get a glimpse of the glory of God, it is then that you realize God knows you. He knows the real you. And when you know this, you will begin to walk in alignment with his will. Walking in the light is more than just moral conformity. If it was about just rule-keeping, think about it. Saul of Tarsus would have never had to change. He would have been just fine. Didn't he say that according to righteousness under the law, he was blameless? Gideon just taught on that last night, Thursday night. Um, he counted that as rubbish. He counted that as worthless for the sake of knowing Christ. Ultimately, walking in the light goes deeper than knowing that you are a sinner. It is more than just an awareness of what is right. It is more than just being accountable to others about it. It is more than just outward conformity. Walking in the light means seeing Jesus and treasuring him enough to make his priorities your own. It means saying yes to him and no to self every time. It means not pretending that you are holy, but letting the real you be seen. So contrast walking in the light with walking in the darkness for just a moment. John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20 says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now here's the thing. What exactly does Jesus say people are worried about? They are worried that their sin will be exposed. But the question is, exposed to whom? The reality is that people aren't always that worried about others knowing their sin. Adam and Eve were naked, and they were unashamed in the garden. But then when they sinned, and they knew they were naked, what did they do? They hid together. But they did not hide from one another. They hid from God. They were concerned that their sin would be exposed to God. And although there is shame in our sins being exposed before one another, and sometimes more than others, I don't think that that's what Jesus is talking about here. People like to sin together. Sinners want to sin with other sinners. They want to draw you in so that they won't be alone. If you are sitting with them, you can't condemn them. But I think the point that Jesus is making is that even the person who is handed over to the most depraved mind, who has completely suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, that person still shudders at the thought of being naked and exposed before a holy God. Walking in the darkness means living like an unbeliever. There are some watching who are unbelievers. If that is you, you should know that you have every reason to live in terror because unless you bow the knee to Jesus in this life, you will bow the knee in the next and it will be in judgment. 
You must repent and believe that Jesus died on the cross for sinners like you and me, and he will receive all who come to him. I encourage you, if you do not know Jesus, please speak to me, reach out to me. Let me know that you're watching so that I might have a conversation with you. I want more than anything for you to know Jesus and to trust in him and to be saved by him. But I want you to know that there are many who are believers who for a moment, for a time, will live like an unbeliever. When I teach about the depravity of man, I want you to know that I usually jump to Romans chapter 3. And you surely know that there, there is a massive list of all of these Old Testament passages that Paul is quoting or referencing in, regard, in regards to how bad we are, how naturally depraved we are. It is like blow after blow after blow to the face of our pride. But the order of the list is also significant. The very last line functions as both an exclamation point and an explanation of why all the other items on the list are true. Paul quotes Psalm 36 verse 1, There is no fear of God before their eyes. If you are an unbeliever, that is true of you. You don't have a proper fear of God. This is the way all unbelievers live. Whatever light shines in their direction, an unbeliever will scurry away from it like a cockroach. But when the believer, who is able to temporarily live like an unbeliever, has this light they are called to again turn in that direction and walk in the light. When a believer walks in darkness, it destroys their joy. It destroys their spiritual sustenance. Now to know God rightly is to have an appropriate fear of God and an appropriate love for God. Walking in the light, therefore, is what happens when the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is ever before your eyes. Walking in the light means living in the presence of God. Itasca's school burned down. I can't imagine how many parents were brokenhearted as they got their kids ready for school that morning. If it's anything like my house, it was craziness. Putting their kids' shoes on, yelling at them to get in the car, then getting them to school and dropping them off, only to realize when they came home they were in a body bag. Or worse yet, maybe they didn't have the ability to identify the body at all they became very aware of the danger of fire. And not only did they know that it was deadly, they committed themselves together as a community to do something about it. Itasca's school district installed a world-class fire suppression system that became the industry standard. However, seven years later, they began building a new wing to the school. It was then that someone made a shocking discovery. The water lines for the sprinklers had never been attached. In other words, if there had been a fire, it would have done nothing. There would have been no water flowing. It wouldn't have stopped it, even a little. Concerning sin, you can know that it's wrong. You can have accountability. You can confess your sin to others. You can even confess your sin to God himself. You can even work really hard at fighting sin in your own strength. But whatever system you put in place, Whatever you do to help you fight sin is ultimately going to fail unless you get this one thing right. Plead with God to give you a glimpse of his glory. Pray that you will have a deep and abiding fear of God that results in genuine worship. Only then will you have the ability to walk in the light as he is in the light. The entirety of the Christian life comes down to this one reality. If you set your heart on the Lord, you will walk accordingly. He has saved us, and he has saved us so that we might behold him. 
we are able to delight in him and to abide in him because of the redemption that we find through the blood of Jesus Christ. So allow me now to close with the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Let's pray. God, I ask that every unbeliever who is watching this right now would be so deeply convicted of the fact that they have hid their face from you, that they have run from you, that they have denied the light that has shone in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would break their heart. And by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw them, bring them the gifts of faith and repentance so that they might turn to Jesus rightly and appropriately. Save them, Lord, we pray. And God, I ask for those who do know you, those who are part of Redeeming Grace Fellowship and those who are not, who are simply viewing on YouTube, God, I pray that you would use this sermon to encourage us to fight sin the right way, using the right tools, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, I pray that you would please help us, those who know you, not to fight sin in our own strength, for in that we fail. Help us, Lord, to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Lord, I ask that today, if there is anyone who is trapped in sin, who feels like they are caught and they just can't get out. Lord, I pray that you would break the bondage of sin in their life, believer or unbeliever, that they might walk in the fullness of knowing Jesus Christ and be transformed into the image of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.